Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, and welcome to Building a Bridge to God's Word. This is Carla Unseth, and thank you for joining us today. So if you've been following along with the podcast, you know that we've been talking a little bit about the history of the English Bible. How did we get the Bible that we have today? So we started out talking about the original writing of the Bible. In other words, it's inspiration by God. And then we talked about the first period of translation where there were many translations done. And then there were a thousand years where there really wasn't much translation done. So we looked at the reawakening of translation at the time of the Reformation. So there was one thing that I kind of skipped over, and that is what is called canonization. In other words, the canon of scripture, or how do we know which books are inspired and which ones are not? Who chose them and how did they do that? And then also... Why does the Catholic Bible have a set of books between the Old Testament and New Testament that the Protestant Bible doesn't have? So I wanted to take a quick step backward from the Reformation and talk about how the books of the Bible were chosen. It's actually really interesting to look at the formation of the canon and see how it fits right in with the story of the transmission of the Bible. But before we do that, let's actually look at what the word canon means. So literally, this word comes from a Hebrew word, which means reed or measuring rod. So in this context, it's kind of like saying which books have been measured and found to fit in the scriptures. So the process of canonization or deciding which books were officially in the Bible and which ones weren't actually started with the Israelites as soon as Moses had written the first five books of the Old Testament. So as soon as they had those, they had scripture and they recognized that those books were God's word and they started to carefully preserve them for future generations. And as more books were written, they were added. But of course, as more books were written also, there came a desire to actually decide and recognize which which of these were inspired by God and which weren't, and so which required this careful preservation and which didn't. So as the Jews added things to their scripture, they had certain criteria that they used to help decide what was part of their scriptures and what wasn't. So, of course, not every criteria had to be met for every book, but if they weren't, there had to be a compelling reason to include them. So um, here's five different criteria, I'll just give them to you, of what, what was used to determine what was scripture. So one, it had to be written by a prophet, someone who was a recognized prophet in those times. Second, the book itself had to claim divine authority. And this came either directly, there are books that say this is the words of God, or it had to be indirect, basically meaning that there's clear revelation of God through the book, through the context. So third, the book has to reveal the truth. And part of that is not containing error, either in doctrine, so in theological issues, or in historical facts. They, there couldn't be any error, even in any of the facts that were recorded. Fourth, 
these books had to show that they had been life-changing. In order to be dynamic and part of God's word, it had to be something that actually impacted people's lives. And then fifth, it had to be recognized by God's people as God's word. So there were a few books that were questioned, and one example of this is actually the book of Esther. And the major objection to that book is that it doesn't contain the name of God in the whole book. And also there's a few other objections, like it deals with secular history rather than sacred history, and it also doesn't make any overt claims to inspiration. But as scholars looked at this book, as the ancient Hebrew rabbis looked at this book, they saw that God's presence was evident in the book, which does mean that it does have this revelation of God and claim to divine inspiration through its content. It also teaches the truth and didn't have any error in doctrine or in historical fact, and it was shown to be life-changing. So for these reasons, the early rabbis did decide to keep it in the canon. So the Old Testament canon was completed around 300 BC. That's 300 years before Christ and about 100 years after the last Old Testament book was written. So at that point, the canon was closed. No other books could be added to the Old Testament, even if another ancient book was found. Like if you read in the Old Testament, you read about some other books, like, for example, the Annals of the Kings of Israel. But if that book was ever found, it would not be added to the Old Testament. It would definitely be historically valuable, but we would not consider it scripture. So the Israelites made sure carefully to preserve the words that they found were inspired. And so these other books that were lost didn't have this work put into their preservation. And and then we also know that God himself would keep his inspired word preserved for us through the generations. He wouldn't allow that to be lost. So if something is lost and then found, we, we would see value in it historically, but we would never add it to the scripture. We wouldn't add it to the Bible. From there, we can move on to the New Testament. And the story of the New Testament is a little different because early Christians already technically had a Bible, which was the Old Testament. As a result, they were slower to collect and canonize new things that were being written, but they did see these new things being written as inspired by God, and so it slowly became more necessary to put them into collection, into a collection, and have an official list. There were various reasons that they decided to do this, and you know some of those reasons were to teach local believers, but also the gospel was being spread. We talked about this in that second podcast about this boom of translation as Christians were persecuted and as a result went to new areas and brought the Bible with them. But in order to do that, they had to know which books were considered inspired and which ones weren't. So along with that, there's also there was also the desire to combat heresy as as different groups cropped up and used different pieces of the scriptures they had to say here's the truth and here's the books that show us the truth and then there also was a need to sort of delineate between inspired writings and uninspired writings there were plenty of people writing about christ and so they really had to mark out which books and letters were inspired by god and which ones were not so The Old Testament was slowly gathered over a period of thousands of years, and the New Testament kind of slowly became gathered as well, but it was over just a few hundred years. 
But even before there was an official canon, there was definitely a feeling among people of which books were inspired and which ones weren't. And actually, some New Testament books even mention other New Testament books as scripture. There's a verse, um, 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter calls Paul's writing scripture. He says his letters, meaning Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So he says about Paul's writing, these people distort his writing as the other scriptures. So he's lumping Paul's writing in with the scriptures. And he's just assuming it also. It's not something that he's defending to these people. He's just saying, we all know that Paul's writing our scriptures. And this is how these people are using these scriptures. So it's, it's interesting to see that even at that time, they're recognizing other people's writings as inspired by God. So as early as 100 AD, various church fathers were mentioning certain books that they considered to be part of the canon. They were saying, these are books that we recognize as inspired. That's by 100 AD, about 70 years or so after the death of Christ. But by 373 AD, all 27 books that we have in the New Testament were considered canonical by different church fathers. So at that time, there were church fathers who were writing lists and they were saying, and they, they were including all the books that we currently have. But it wasn't official, and the church recognized this need for it to sort of be official, to have the church get together, all the leaders of the church make an official designation. So in 393, there was a council of church fathers, so all of these leaders in the church got together, and it was called the Council of Hippo because it took place in a city called Hippo. And there, all 27 books that we currently have in the New Testament were confirmed to be inspired and included in the canon. Then there was another council, the Council of Carthage, four years later, where they again looked at the canon and they reaffirmed these 27 books. And at that point, the canon was closed. So nothing else was added to the Bible after that point. When those councils looked at the books, they also had several criteria, as with the Old Testament, that they used to affirm and approve the books of the Bible. And again, not every book met every criteria, but each one had to have very good reasons to be included if they did not. So there were six different criteria. So the first is that it had to be written by an apostle, which is someone who was a direct eyewitness of Christ. And of course, Paul is included, and Paul is considered an apostle because he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. So that's what makes him an apostle. Second, and this is a closely related reason, was the date. The books had to be written between the time of Christ and 100 AD, and that's because the last of the apostles had died at that point in 100 AD. So as with the Old Testament, several of the criteria were the same as the Old Testament, such as they had to claim divine authority, either directly or indirectly. They had to contain truth without error, and they had to be recognized by God's people as scripture. Also, as with the Old Testament, of course, there were a few books that were disputed. And one of those, as an example, is the book of Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews is unknown, and it even says in Hebrews or implies that the author was not an eyewitness of Christ, but received the message of Christ through other people who had heard him. It says that in Hebrews 2, 3. 
So it for sure doesn't have apostolic authorship. So that first criteria is definitely out. So a second objection when they were looking at this book was that there were some groups of heretics who were using Hebrews as some as a proof text for some of their heretical ideas. So um, the church was a little a little concerned that this book could be used to support heresy. But in the end, they determined that when it was used rightly, it does reveal divine authority. It does teach the truth. It's truthful in doctrine and in historical fact. It had been shown to lead to life change. And it was recognized by a majority of God's people. So therefore, they did decide to add it into the canon. So that means by A.D. 373, we had the complete Bible, the complete scripture. And at that time, the canon was closed, meaning that nothing else can be added to it. So once again, even if more books or letters are found, we can use them because they may be interesting historically. They might even be useful for spiritual growth, but they will never be added to the Bible. Nothing that is written now will ever be added to the Bible. I actually had an interesting experience recently where um, someone told me that we should, me as a Bible translator, we should actually be translating the book Jesus Calling rather than the Bible because, um, you know, that's the word of God to this woman who wrote it. And it's changed many people's lives. I was a little bit taken aback. And I think it shows that we need to be very careful in separating what is God's inspired word to all people from all times, from other books which are great and help us grow spiritually. And maybe God has spoken to this person, but we are not going to consider it God's inspired word and part of the Bible. So there is one last question that I want to address, and that is about the Apocrypha. So the Catholic Church has a set of books between the Old and New Testament that in Protestant terminology at least is called the Apocrypha. So why are these books not included in the Protestant Bible and are they part of the canon or not? So the books included in the Apocrypha were written in what's called the intertestamental period. So, so that's that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 years. And they were very popular reading among the Jews, but they were never actually included by the Jews in their scripture. And actually, as those years went on, there became some doubt as to their value in spiritual formation because there were a th few theological points that they were often. So by AD 70, the Jews had actually completely rejected them and said, these are not part of our scriptures. The early Christian church didn't outright reject them. But they also did not accept them as part of the scripture. They were never included in the canon. And ultimately, they were rejected by the church because they don't claim to be divinely inspired. They were questionable in their ability to change lives. And that's because many of them contained errors in spiritual facts and also in historical facts. So there are also some external things that made the, the church fathers choose not to include the Apocrypha. And things like Jesus quoted a lot from the Old Testament, and he never quoted from the Apocrypha. And there's other quotes from the, New, from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and never the Apocrypha. It's never quoted. And also, no council ever included the Apocrypha in the canon. So we talked about the Council of Hippo. We talked about the Council of Carthage. They never accepted the Apocrypha into the canon. 
And in fact, these books did not come into the Catholic Bible until the 1500s, until 1546 during the Counter-Reformation. So the church is fighting the efforts of the Reformers. We talked last time about the efforts of the Reformers to bring the Bible to the people. And so during that time is when the Catholic Church said, we're going to include the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha is not an official part of the canon. I wouldn't consider it inspired scripture. But what do we do with it? As we talked about for other books, it's not wrong to read it, but you have to read it with a discerning eye and compare what it says to other parts of scripture. It's known to have theological and historical inaccuracies. So anytime you're reading it, you need to take what it says, go back to the scripture that we know for sure is inspired and say, how does this compare? So there is a look at the canon, how we got the books of the Bible that we have today. So I know it's a little bit longer of a podcast than usual, so thank you for sticking with me through it. And I hope it's really been interesting to you to see how the books that we have today were chosen, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the process that brought those books into the canon, and then also the different criteria that were used to pick which books and affirm which books were God's inspired words. So if you have any more questions about the canon, definitely feel free to contact me. My website is www.bridgetogodsword.org, and I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you'll join us again next time to hear more about the history of the English Bible. Thanks so much for joining us.